Hey. Hey, Mom. Hi, honey. Yeah. Hang on a second. Yeah. Oh, you were already there? How did you do? Jeez, this is amazing. Huh? I, do this, uh, I do this a lot. See, here's video. Hello. Well, hi, honey. I was going to turn out the video so you can talk and you don't have to feel like you. That's okay. That you, that you have to look. Okay. Okay, so what are you doing? Uh, packing, actually. So uh, how? Halima's doing that right now. I'm taking a little break. Hi, Halima. Uh, uh, she she can't hear you. She's watching right. something in the other room while packing. Okay. Well, okay. Let me just make sure that this is, are, are we recording? Yes. Okay. Uh, I just want to make sure we, we get a transcript because then I'll write it up and send it to you and have you okay it. So, okay. so what I'm doing is I'm doing a scenes class and, um, and so I have different, you know, sections. And so one's, you know, sort of the overall and the next is how to, build is how, how the scene fits into the play and then finally I'm in how to actually do the scene and the big questions are to me where what is the setting you have to decide before you even really start what is the setting and then what is the point of view approach Okay, I'm going to talk about point of view in fiction, written fiction, but, you know, point of view is handled differently in filmed stories. And so yeah, I, I wanted mean, to ask you for uh, help with that. So, you know, essentially, okay, so he, film should be thought of as far as point of view goes as sort of like a third person omniscient. You know, there <laughs> are movies that will do voiceover. Uh, most recently, the Harley Quinn movie, um, that just came out, Birds of Prey, has uh, a bunch of voiceover on it. Which makes it kind of first person? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is told in her point of view. So this is kind of the way to think about it. Most films, 99% of films, are similar to a third person omniscient kind of narrator-esque, except the narrator is the camera. So it's okay. more objective, maybe? 
Yeah, so like the camera is, is basically describing everything to you visually of what's going on. Um, so, but you are following a character or a group of characters the entire time, right? And in those scenes, directors can choose to be in kind of their point of view. They can kind of, uh, and so how you can do that is you can have the set design, the uh, around them point out to things that are going on internally. Good films use the scenes, the camera movement, the way like the lighting and stuff to kind of enhance, to get you into that character's point of view. So sort example, of to draw yeah. the, the viewer's attention to this yeah. person particularly. A, a perfect example, uh, Film School 101, is you're supposed to do a scene in, uh, basically where you create somebody's room. Okay, so you're mm -hmm. supposed to do a scene where you have a character and you go and you show their bedroom. All right, now if someone's bedroom says the most about somebody, right? It's their kind of private area. It's where they want to be to feel comfortable in these kind of things, right? So you would dress it up a certain way. If the most obvious one is if the person is into punk rock music, they're probably going to have a bunch of punk rock posters and things all over their walls. And it's going to be like dirty and grungy. Maybe there's a guitar and an amplifier somewhere, right? Like extremely basic stuff. But that still gives you kind of a viewpoint into their character. Or if you wanted to do something totally different is you have a punk rocker dressed all in punk clothes, right? And then come home into their room and their room is a nicely decorated, like perfectly manicured place, right? Mm -hmm. Like that says a lot about them. So the way to think about it is, as, as opposed to as far as writing goes, is when you have the omniscient narrator describing all the things of when somebody walks into a place, your camera is doing that. Your camera is showing everything. You know. Now, would this be in the script or would the director or the cinematographer? The script can describe things and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, so, you know, if I was writing a script or something uh, and I wanted to have uh, a, a character, you know, I would describe the room because you don't, you can kind of, some, some screenwriters will do more of a novel approach where they will describe a person's inner monologue, essentially, like, or a character's mm -hmm. uh, traits about them and stuff in like a character introduction paragraph. Mm -hmm. So basically in a screenplay, when you're writing a character and stuff, you start with like the character and you describe them and then you start with their lines and then you describe actions in between lines, right? Mm -hmm. So in between dialogue, I should say. Um, so in those action lines, you know, where for instance, Parker walks into a room, the room is glistening, like impeccably designed, which was very surprising considering that Marcus was a punk rocker. You would think that Marcus would have a dirty, grungy room, but it's actually very, very immaculate design, there's artwork, uh, very, very well done artwork, these kind of things. And then you let the details be done by the set designer and the director, right? The set designer mm -hmm. and director will be like, okay, so this part, this part of the script I kind of like. I think that, you know, having a punk rocker be in this immaculately designed home and bedroom and stuff, let's have this kind of painting. I want to see a painting of like a sad clown or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's the kind of way to think about point of view in film is that the point of view is the camera. So if the camera, there's first person movies, there's found footage movies, you know, those are kind of like the first person point of view as well. Um, you know, a big, a good example of that is the movie Cloverfield or the uh, paranormal activity movies, like mostly horror films at this point are doing first person. Um, some action movies are doing it too, but that those movies tend not to have a lot of real character development sort of stuff going on. It's mostly just, you know, running around screaming or shooting stuff or doing actions and things like that. So in, in, you're saying with Cloverfield and Blair Witch and all that, 
the a character is carrying the camera. Yes. Okay. So that's very not, often, let's be clear. These are this is a relatively recent kind of filmmaking. Um, like the TV show. It's like I just watched Forensic Files, which is obviously. I mean, you know, this is packaged. That that you know, this isn't improvised or anything like that. But mm -hmm. there is the the voiceover guy. You know, Bill Curtis or whatever heck it is. That's documentary though. Okay. So. So documentary is not fiction. Now, if you're including non-fiction, well, I'm, I'm talking mostly narrative. So that would include non-fiction narrative. Narrative. Okay. So narrative. All right. So in the industry, when people refer to narrative film or narrative TV shows, mm -hmm. those are story-driven fiction. Okay. I know okay. it's kind of confusing. A lot of the terms get kind of screwed up. Um, some like movie and TV reviewers will refer to the narrative, but that's how you can immediately tell these. TV, film and TV reviewers have never worked in the industry, right? Mm. Like if it's a the narrative of a documentary, well, in the industry lingo, documentaries do not have narrative. They do have story. You have to tell a story, but they don't have quote unquote narrative. Okay, so, um, so Star Trek, Star Wars is a narrative. The making of Star Wars is a documentary. It's a documentary, yes. Okay. Um, but you know the thing is, is that in documentary, point of view is extremely important too. Like, who is your point of view character? Who are you following? The camera is its own point of view, but you are following a character, right? And it, that is very much a third-person omniscient narrator, right? Because that's the documentary. Most documentaries will have to do with voiceovers or interviews, right? Many times there'll be voiceovers, uh, and you're kind of in the perspective of the filmmaker. And other sequences, there's, there's things that will bring like Morgan Freeman to narrate it, and it's then all of a sudden a third person omniscient. I mean, Morgan Freeman is the best example, March of the Penguins, right? Or David Attenborough. They have a they very godly characters, sounding voice. Right, a very that? omniscient sounding voice. Like that's that's mm -hmm. very much third person. Right. And and voiceover I was thinking also of Star Wars in a galaxy far away, long ago far uh, that you know that yeah. the, the voiceover at the beginning is not like flea bag, you know, kind of voiceover where well, I so am that's so so what, that's omniscient. That Star Wars one is omniscient. Yeah, Fleabag, Fleabag is a a great example of of uh, unreliable narrator. The first season, um, it's probably one of the best unreliable narrators ever done, ever put on screen. Mm -hmm. uh, I I really really like the way that so so they do so Phoebe Waller Bridge, you know, writer director star of it. Um, what she did was she does a fourth wall style. Hang on, Halima just left, and so Link's all freaking out now. Hi, Link. Hey. That's probably not going to help. Yeah, right. Um, so, so what what she did was she did the. It's a first person story, right? It is all mm -hmm. centered. Every single scene in Fleabag is centered around. They never name the character, so you know, just Fleabag. Fleabag. But we also know every scene she is in. Every scene is her doing things, and we're right? limited to her knowledge. Perspective. Yeah, exactly. and and that she's withholding like how her friend died. Yeah, we should probably put a spoiler tag. Okay. Well, I would feel tag. like if it's we're talking about the second. Well, but we're talking but about the first season. Him. It's still yeah. a very popular show. People, you know, you want to just want to be careful. Anyway, not important. But yes, it is an example of an unreliable narrator in the sense that. Uh, that she is hiding things from the audience. She's not telling the whole story. Things are happening on camera as she's telling them and her reaction to these things are what make a lot of the show really funny and enjoyable. What's really brilliant about the second season is that they actually flip that on its head. 
and there's a character who notices her doing something weird when she goes to break the fourth wall. And it's really, really good because it becomes a big part of the second season is why she does this. What is this omniscient narration that she's doing? Is this really just her having like severe issues mentally and stuff where she goes off into her own little world and things and it's everything that she's telling us suddenly coming and collapsing, right? It's really, really well done. Um, and there's a lot of, a lot of modern films are doing this where they're really deconstructing, if you will. Um, they're really deconstructing the idea of point of view, the way that film structure is supposed to be made, which standard film structure is the camera is your omniscient narrator. The camera follow these, follows these characters, interactions, actions, all these things that they're doing. And it is complementing with the set design, with the lighting. It's complementing everything that's going on in the story. A lot of modern films, this really kind of started a long time ago. You know, there's the French New Wave. They really started messing with this. It's now becoming more mainstream. Uh, but a lot of it is now starting to deconstruct it even further and break it down. And there's, there's a reason why a lot of modern filmmakers and stuff in the indie scene read a lot of Derrida, you know? Okay, well, let's, let's go back to the idea of the omni, because, you know, sure. I always think of the history of point of view in fiction, that it actually was epistolary novels first, because people were used to reading letters, and say so of Clarissa and Robinson Crusoe and all that, which were sort of first person, but written as if, well, found narrative, really. Um, yeah, Frankenstein, well, Frankenstein's got a serious point of view issue, but okay. But, but, yes. but that was what in the 17th and 18th century, people felt comfortable reading other people's mail or other people's letters, other people's diaries, because they were familiar with that, those media. But then in the 19th century, things got much more controlled, and that's where omniscient narration really became the idea there's some god of this book that's determining what it is you think and perceive and understand what's going on is what I tell you to, I'm the God. Oh. And, and it seems to think? me that while that it was always, you know, always warring with first person as the dominant approach. And then in the 20th century where you get much more personal first person or third person. So you have three kind of all very important approaches. And what you're kind of saying is that film, TV, film media story was mostly omniscient for most of the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that would be, and, and so, you know, there's the fiction, even in, in um, fiction, but in written fiction, the omniscient narrator is either the author or kind of a godlike creature. Yes. Someone who knows everything and chooses what to tell the audience. Yeah, and that's the, essentially the director and cinematographer. Okay, and that, and so in film, it's, it's very much about where you point the camera, Mm -hmm. what you focus on, how you yeah, set that's the that. point of view. Because you need to think in film, you know, you are seeing, you are watching the movie with your eyes, right? Mm -hmm. And so the camera is your eyes. It is as if you are, you know, a fly on the wall kind of in the situation in a lot of standard movies and stuff. Now, obviously there's going to be editing, cutting, moving things around, having actors move in certain ways and stuff. I mean, this is why like, you know, film was started as a silent medium. There was no voices. There was no audio. Mm -hmm. It was almost action reaction and things and so this is where a lot of these concepts originally developed um, and it kind of accidentally made it so that people can understand what's going on really well without being told mm -hmm. that's why there's the the truism in filmmaking that's called show don't tell right like it's much easier to just tell the audience but it's also boring like the audience didn't come here for somebody to read an audiobook just get an audiobook version of it 
you know, show it. Mm -hmm. You know, for, so for example, instead of, there's a lot of movies that will do exposition dumps, like a lot of not so good movies. They'll have very convoluted stories and they'll need to, uh, I think the best example of this, of a modern movie is Suicide Squad. It's, okay. you know, it's a movie, it's just the best example that came to mind. Also, I watched Birds of Prey, Prey last night, so it's kind of on my mind, I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, but Suicide Squad is not very good. Suicide Squad has a lot of problems where they'll introduce characters suddenly and then they will just do an exposition dump on, was what we refer to, on this character. So for example, they introduce this character like three quarters of the way into the movie called, whose name is Katana, it's very dumb. But then they just, one of the main characters just says, this is Katana, here's, she has a blade that's pursed with the souls of the people she killed. You better not mess with her because she'll cut your head off and stuff where it's like, they even showed that earlier in the movie, but for some reason they felt that, sorry, they felt that the audience was so dumb that they needed to be told it again. And that's what's happening is in a lot of these bad movies is that they don't have, they don't trust their audience to understand that they're actually showing them these characters. They're actually interacting with these characters. We're seeing it. We don't need to be told what those characters' motivations are. We need to see it, you know? So it's the kind of thing where like, what's, what's more interesting to you? It's more interesting having a character in a book, even a book, having a character say, oh, this is Amanda. Amanda likes like, if you just think of that way, Amanda likes flowers. She really likes, you know, um, she really, really likes blankets that warm her up her feet because her feet get cold, like these kind of things. Like, why would anybody say that? Right? Yeah. Why would yeah. anybody suddenly... I think like, of that in the resume also. Uh, Sarah went to Princeton where she majored in, you know, that the resume uh, opening. Yeah. And you know what? You can show that really easily where in Sarah's office, she has a, she has her diploma framed on the wall. And you can just take a camera and move past it. And it says, you know, masters of, uh, masters of Physics or something like that from Princeton. You know, like Masters of Physics, Princeton, SEAL, boom. You've just shown it. Mm -hmm. And you can just move past it. And our eyes, our brains will be able to read that and see that and get it. Like this one of the things is that film, film is very, very good. Our viewers are very good at seeing and understanding these things. Our brains naturally look for patterns of things we understand. So if you have a big diploma that says Princeton, immediately our brains are going to be like, oh, this person is smart. They went to a high, like a well-respected university and they got a master's degree. Boom. We've just showed everybody this character is smart. And so when this character figures things out later in this big mystery or whatever, we know that they're smart and we don't have to then explain that, oh, well, by the way, Amanda's really smart and stuff because she went to Princeton and got a master's degree. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that that's, that's, that's actually kind of, you know, harder to do in fiction because um, you don't have any pan shots, I suppose. Um, so, okay. Um, now, the, the idea of selection for point of view I guess there's two different things also. Point of view, is, it's uh -huh. most famous. Point of, yeah, I'm sorry. I must have flipped off. Wait a second. Hang on. Are you there now? Hey, Mom, sorry. I lost you there a bit. Can you, okay. Can you start? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Um, oh, you just turned your video on. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out where they, okay, anyway, um, what I am, uh, it seems to me that point of view in both cases have, you know, viewpoint has two different meanings. One is that where do you point the camera, well, you know, whose head are you in, whatever. The other though is the viewpoint, the, that you have viewpoints, your opinion, your attitude, what you want to convey. Mm -hmm. 
and it and so it seems to me of course one is the route to the other that you the way you point the camera that what character you choose to feature is you're giving a viewpoint you're giving an opinion or you're trying to say something about this um so who you choose to focus on in film would you say that makes their viewpoint their their understanding of things the theoretical understanding of the film um, so, an example well you know you rashomon you have four different views yeah so not a whole lot of movies will do what rashomon did um most movies aren't going to do that you know when we're going to talk about we need to understand that there's that I guess, I guess, what do you, what do you want to focus on? Do you want to focus on more mainstream kind of like Hollywood style of filmmaking or more like independent or what are the options? Well, there's always options, but you're not going to get something. You're not going to be able to do Rashomon and stuff and get a big budget for it. You know, you, there is a, in, in the film industry, because things are so expensive and so much money is going into it. Um, people aren't going to be willing to take a risk when they're dropping millions of dollars on something, right? Well, so, I, but, so but I guess, anyway, but, that's just an example of how you can have different points of view. Uh, and I mean, but every, would you say every film that is done narratively well is going to, there is going to be not just the cameras looking at this, but that that is done in service of presenting a certain worldview or a certain opinion or a certain message? Yeah, I mean... Whether okay, it's the so, authors so, or the directors or a well, generally speaking, the majority of subjective opinion on what makes good films are films that blend their storytelling and their the and their visual elements all together. So the storytelling is a, it's it's visually uh, and their visual and audio elements blend really well to enhance the story they're telling. Mm-hmm. Also, the story they're telling is a good one. Um, a master of this is Martin Scorsese. Another one, uh, well, um, was, was a really good filmmaker who does this. Uh, you know, I would actually say that um, uh, Karen Kusama, who's more on the, uh, who's, who's more kind of on the independent side of things, she's, she's had a couple of movies where she does this pretty much perfectly, where she blends audio and visual uh, elements of a film into telling a story and every single scene enhances whatever the story is being told and so it's really it's really really important to do that if you're if you're trying to make a film that is uh is is saying something it reacts that people react to on an emotional level again scorsese is very good at this um he's probably the our current best example of that where every single one of his um movies like the dialogue the, the the soundtrack is very much the soundtrack is very pointed to whatever's happening you know i mean that's probably what he's most well known for at this point is he always has great soundtracks right taxi driver yeah taxi driver you know um goodfellas has an amazing soundtrack that actually follows throughout the film because the film takes over the it takes takes the course of like 30 years or so uh and the music changes as the movie goes along um you know a a very you know, what are you, what are you saying when you are playing, for instance, um, let's say, okay, we'll bring it, we'll use Martin Scorsese as an example. What do you think Martin Scorsese is saying when he's using a Rolling Stones song 
for instance, um, the, from The Departed and stuff, there is, uh, I can't think of the name of that Rolling Stone song, Stone song right now um, that they use for that. Give Me Shelter. Okay. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Like, he's having a scene where they're in a bar and there's people like getting beaten up and stuff. And in the music is Give Me Shelter by the Rolling Stones. You know, that's just enhancing the fact that this is violence and danger and our undercover cop is at any moment can be caught and found to be a cop. Mm -hmm. And he has, in this scene, he has his arm broken and stuff to prove that he's not a cop. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's the kind of thing where uh, it, it's, it's, it's just an enhancement. You know, the, the, whole, mm -hmm. the whole purpose of the scene is just to show that Leonardo DiCaprio's character is not a cop, right? That's it. All you need to do to get through the scene is Leonardo DiCaprio is not a cop. Okay, so how are we going to make the audience think this is actually something extremely dangerous? This is something where his life is on the line, his family's life is on the line. How are you going to do this? And so there's the way that the camera is shooting everything in like medium close-ups where it just shows they're sitting at a bar. The jukebox is playing Rolling Stones, Gimme Shelter. And uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is much smaller than the guy interrogating him. Mm -hmm. You're doing all of these things. The lighting is, is that... He's very lit. He's lit very brightly. He's very high, uh, what we call overexposed. He's lit, he's lit very brightly. The person next to him is interrogating him is lit in darkly and stuff, you know. Um, he's in view. Everybody is looking at him. You know, it's, it's really So the whole uh, point, in a way, is to give the reader the experience of being exposed in that way and being yeah. in danger if he is exposed. Because one of the things I'm saying is that the scene's all about experience. You're giving the audience the experience. And yeah. so this is not just to show, but also to um, go beyond that to to have the reader, the, the audience actually feel it. Yes, very, very much. And that's uh, point of view. And I agree. That's point of fiction. That's point of view too. Uh, but in, in uh, but it seems like, and of course, you know, a film calls upon more tools, and yet, you know, you can build most of that with words. You can't build all of it, but you can build a lot of that with words. But it's, um, but you can see it's so much more brought to life than in a film scene. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's the kind of thing where, um, where you're, you're taught, you know, if we're going to talk about film school and film theory, um, you're taught a lot of things about this. And, and if we're going to use more like mainstream Hollywood style stuff, mm -hmm. you know, um, where even, even films like, I mean, okay, so an example, why do critics like Marvel movies over DC movies, generally speaking, right? And that's not the best example because DC has been on a run of making a lot of like well-reviewed movies lately. So, but uh, here's a better example. Why do people like, why do reviewers like um, Captain America Civil War more than they liked Batman v Superman? Okay. okay. I'm not sure if you saw either of these movies, but one thing that Civil War does really well is that they're essentially the same story. You have two legends of this property, of these properties and stuff, going up against each other and fighting the last 30 minutes of the movie, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's a super intelligent villain who's been pitting them against each other this entire time, right? It's essentially the same movie. But the difference is, is that Marvel Civil War set all this up, is using really, really good editing, uh, really strong camera work. Everything is in service of this main conflict. The two theories that are being tested in Civil War uh, compared to Batman v Superman, you know? So the theory in Civil War is that essentially um, 
we should be very okay. So Tony Stark's viewpoint is that we should police superheroes, right? Like there should be a body that is in charge of us to make sure that we don't go too far because of this destruction that we've done, right? Captain mm -hmm. America is kind of the Randian viewpoint that like, no, we are superhuman. We are, the government is corrupt. We can't like trust them, these kind of things, right? And these mm -hmm. two are battling out. In Batman v Superman, it's very much the same, except that it's Superman should be policed. Batman believes that Superman should be policed and stuff. Um, because like Superman can literally destroy the world if he ever goes back, right? The problem is, is that Batman believes that Superman should be policed by Batman, right? Okay. And that just means that Batman is trying to, is a Randian hero, if you will, to Superman's Randian hero. It's two Randian heroes who have the same idea and stuff. They just think one should have it over the other. And the focus in Batman v Superman is all on just them essentially. And this one idea that they all share, as opposed to Civil War, it's two contrasting ideas. And so how they do it in Civil War is, well, Tony Stark sequences are lit differently than, uh, and shot differently than sequences that focus on, uh, on Captain America. The lighting and the power dynamics, the way the camera moves, the action and stuff, the scenes, it is a Captain America movie. So he's, you know, the, essentially the one who's right and the hero and stuff. And Tony Stark learns that it's wrong. It's the whole thing, but it's lit, shot, all to use those two viewpoints and to have them clash together. Batman v Superman is incomprehensible a lot of the time. A lot of the time it's very dark. Uh, it's shot very dark. You have to have like, you have these two heroes, except half the time you can't even see them when they're arguing and making these points. They're just telling the audience what, the, what these points are and just lecturing the entire time. Um, and so the point, of, the point of viewpoint of this and stuff is that when you have in film, just like in books and stuff, you can have two different viewpoints. You have two different points of view and you're able to move the camera and change each scene each time you're seeing them to reflect that. And so I think that's something that's really interesting when it comes to point of view is because what if you have two characters who have two different points of views on a subject and how do you shoot that differently? How do you show that differently? And film does a good job of showing people who have different points of views in different literal, literally different lighting. Batman v Superman does a bad job of this because they both look the same. Mm -hmm. They both are lit the same. They're both, because they're basically making the same argument and stuff. It's just that one should have power over the other. So I think that's why, that's why critics, for example, like Civil War better than Batman v Superman is because it did a better job of having a coherent storyline with coherent visual representation of what the characters were going through. And well, Batman v Superman did Right, and since service to something, it's it's, right, uh, it's there's there's some understanding or meaning that that this is meant to get across. So, um, so that's a good example of how you know why it makes for a more successful story and and presentation. Um, okay, well let's let's go to uh, I can see that you know with omniscient, it, it's the fact it's omniscient doesn't mean that. Uh, that there's no actual attitude or approach or point of view. Um, it's it's not, and and so that that so that comes out here. That there, that's a good example of that. Let's talk about the how other points of view, but specifically, how would you say if if someone wanted to do if if I want to make a story of my life okay a fictionalized thing but so i want to highlight one character 
I want the audience to feel this character is I, not necessarily me. I get, you know, I mean, we can get into all the existential thing about whether first person is meant for the audience to actually feel that they are that person. Um, I don't think it is, but this wants to highlight that. So this film or this episode wants to highlight this one person's understanding of what's happening, perspective of what's happening, what they see is, do you have to, have to basically just, you know, attach a, a forehead cam to them and let them do it? Or is there another way, another thing, which first person is, which is not just they become the camera? Well, that's, you know, that's the narrator and the unreliable narrator stuff. Um, that's, that's the most common way this stuff is done instead of doing, well, now I guess it's, it's basically found footage films and first person cameras now with like GoPro cameras and stuff. Um, they're able to do this, but you know, uh, a good example of this was um, the movie, uh, man, it came out a couple of years ago, actually quite a few, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Kiss, mm -hmm. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is a movie that has, um, Robert Downey Jr. plays a petty thief who uh, stumbles into a, and he's the narrator of the film. It's his voice over the entire time, but he's completely unreliable. He's lying the entire time to the audience. Um, another example of that is the usual suspects, right? Like, so that's one way of doing it. Well, is in the aspect, who is the narrator character? Well, the narrator character is um, is the all right. So the usual suspects follows a a group of characters, criminals who, after being in a police line uh, lineup, decide to plan the perfect crime. Okay. Um, and they're the usual suspects because they're basically petty criminals that always get arrested, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the narrator of the film is played by, um, oh, darn it, I'm, I'm really bad with names today. Uh, <laughs> Kevin Spacey, no. Kevin Spacey, thank you. Okay. Kevin Spacey is the narrator of the film. And so he's, he's an unreliable narrator because, you know, it turns out he's actually the big bad. The big bad of the movie is this legendary criminal. He's mm -hmm. like gets away with everything all the time. Nobody knows who he is. He's Kaiser. His name is Kaiser Soze, and he's this absolute legendary character. And the entire time, um, you know, the narrator has been describing all these things happening and going on, and basically lying the entire movie until the end. You find out that he is actually Kaiser Soze and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So, if that's one way to do it, is to create. If you want their viewpoint, is to to state their viewpoint and stuff. But you know, if you're doing just a, a narrated movie then that's generally not very good because you're showing everything so that's why unreliable narrators are are considered okay compared to just straight narration okay, I mean, let me ever... two other options fight club fight club is an unreliable narrator is it also would you say first person well yes in a sense because there's a narrator but also there's two characters that are always the same character right and that's what makes it unreliable is a narrator is narrating these things okay but is also has no idea what's actually going on because they have a split personality. So but, that's a good way of doing it because you are learning as the character is learning what's going on. Like the character doesn't realize their split personality. You don't realize their split personality until the actual split happens. Another one, I've got two others that I seem to, I don't know, but uh, you know, if I were going to write this as a novel, I'd write it in first person. Silence of the Lamb from Claire's points of, point of view. Well, that was a novel. You, you've used two novels. You've used, oh. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, you're so right. Club was a novel. Yeah. Silence of the Lamb is a novel. So what's happening is these filmmakers are deciding how do I adapt this novel? You know, in the case of Silence of the Lambs, it is it is actually a third person omniscient. Right, but 
they, they, but I can see that, that, that then you make the choices translating now, it to in film. The movie, Silence of the tighter. Lambs and stuff, remember that although Clarice is the main character and stuff, um, his big, Hannibal Lecter's big escape, she's not there for the most of it. So it does jump over in, into that. But then he's not that, there. Yeah, he's not there. Well, when no, he's but he is, his it. big escape and stuff yeah. is that she's, you see his escape, right? But not from <laughs> your viewpoint. So it's still a third person omniscient. But it generally follows Clary Star Starling trying to find this horrible kill. Buffalo Bill, I think, mm -hmm. is if I remember correctly. It's been a long time since I've read the book and seen the Buffalo movie. Bill, right. It's not Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. No, Hannibal Lecter, you know, is in prison at the time. Um, anyway. But it's her so, journey. She's the yeah. one who changes. She's the one that realizes things. Yeah. Yeah, she's the main character, you know, and it is mostly her viewpoint. But the thing about, you know, why that's not a first person, it's more of a third person now omniscient is because there are other characters that fall. Like you see Buffalo Bill commit his crimes, right? right. Before um, Clarice finds him and discovers that it's him, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that. Um, but Fight Club is a first, was a first person book. Yeah, and I see it's, it feels like a first person. Like we're, we discover only along with him, right? Right. Now, David Fincher, the person who directed that movie uh, has gone on to have a very storied amazing career multiple oscar nominee and winner you know he did the social network um he did zodiac he did the american version of uh, the girl with the dragon hat tattoo um he's gone on to make a lot of big movies uh well um gone girl he's done a lot of adaptations and he's really good at, at adapting novels so gone girl is a fine like um, is it sort of like The Godfather, right? It's a book that was pop fiction. Mm -hmm. you know, it's got an interesting character hook. It's got interesting characters. It's got a, a high, um, uh, a very, very clever idea behind it. And it's mostly well-written. It's fast-paced. You can get through it really quick. It's great pop fiction. Fincher made it into an Oscar-winning movie, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, essentially, like, he... The Godfather is considered one of the greatest films ever made off of an extremely pop fiction book. You know, one that is not by any means considered to be a great work of, of not like a great novel by any means. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things is that pop novels, for example, can become really, really great movies. Meanwhile, how many people have tried to make, made, tried to make Kafka? Yeah, know, I mean, who's yeah. made a film based on um, James Joyce, or for that matter, um, something that I think is criminally underappreciated is why hasn't there been? Well, there's a good reason, but there should be a movie made about Octavia Butler's, like from Octavia Butler's books and stuff, mm -hmm. right? Because that's great. Octavia e. Butler, for example, makes great pop fiction, but also extremely nuanced um, and thrilling and philosophical books at the same time, using sci-fi and things like that. Um, well, I wonder if you know something that. Well, Kindred, I think they tried to make Kindred into a movie. I think it's just... I think, I, I would think that hers would be much better as an HBO series or... Yeah, there has series, been some time. You know, I know Kindred got picked up at some point to be a movie, uh, and then I think it ended up in development hell for a long time. So I'm well, hoping... Yeah, it, it does seem like pop fiction has the grasp of the story structure is, is so important in, in popular fiction, and that would also be a better vehicle in a lot of ways of exploring certain things in film. Yeah. Well, and I'd say the new, the new Watchmen series, like, you know, to get off on a little side here, the new Watchmen series, obviously the creators were reading a lot of Octavia E. Butler. Mm -hmm. It is heavily, like, if it's not, like, outright, like, 
stealing from certain things from her books. It's certainly very influenced. Um, okay. But yeah, so I would say that, you know, but going on to this point, you know, there's a reason why. So why is it that pop fiction works a lot better sometimes as films and becomes may and certain like great works of fiction don't well like try to adapt the point of view of uh of ulysses okay try to do that you know somebody has there actually is a film based on one of the stories from ulysses um you know and it's it's very very plotting and hard to get through mm -hmm. um try to do gravity's rainbow like books that are considered great fiction and stuff that win all these awards and things are very different because they're changing things, you know? I mean, Nobokov's most pop novel, Lolita, has been made a bunch of times into a movie, right? Because mm -hmm. it's a pop novel, essentially. Now it is exploring deep themes and these kind of things, but it can work very well thematically because it's very pop, it's fast paced, there's a point, things happen. Um, it's not trying, it's not going on to long, 100 page philosophical diatribes, right? It's not doing it. Yeah. Um, unlike James Joyce or, or Marcel Proust, like these are, those movies are unadaptable. I mean, those books are basically unadaptable in the movies. You just can't. But um, I think that having a, a good pop, like The Godfather, which, you know, I started reading again. It's, it's not very well written, just on a no. point of view level. But what it does is it's, it's, it's almost like it gives you the perfect canvas upon which to experiment narratively. <coughs> or not narrative, but, but in how you present this, where Ulysses is already a narrative experiment. You know, yeah. it, it does well, not wanna... have a, a real clear through line. And it's doing all the experimentation. What are you going to experiment with there? Well, and if you want to see what happens when a filmmaker decides that because they adapted a pop novel, uh, they got a bunch of awards, they should do it again, but with a with a novel that's not so poppy, um, all you need to do is watch Francis Ford Coppola's many, 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 many years later uh, adaptation of Youth Without Youth. It's a it's like it's it's just not a very good movie. It's very boring. Um, Youth Without Youth is is a phenomenal novel. Uh, and it's a very interesting idea, character study, if you will. But it's all internal. It's all about their internal thoughts and their, this character's internal experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you make that into a movie? Well, that's very difficult to do. You certainly can do it. Some filmmakers can do it. But Francis Ford Coppola, who you think would be the perfect person to do that, um, kind of went off the deep end, uh, unfortunately. And his movie is extremely, like, it's hard, it's hard to describe without seeing it, but it's almost like watching a movie where a writer-director has decided that this story needs to be about them. Mm -hmm. And it's very self-indulgent. It's a very self-indulgent film. Um, and it, what, it's, what it does, for example, youth, what youth does a lot is there's just scenes where basically nothing happens except there's very, very nice cinematography and very nice set design, but nothing happens. Um, yeah, but you know, I'm thinking also though, he did Apocalypse Now, which is based on Heart of Darkness, which is definitely a literary yeah. novel. However, it's a literary novel with a very straight narrative line. Very, very. You know, it's a journey into darkness, and if there's yeah. a river, and oh, you know what's a really, really okay. This came out not too long ago, but a, a good example of a of a movie version uh, of a novel that was very weird. Okay, but the movie Annihilation. Oh yeah which is very good, um, but it's based on an extremely strange, well-written novel that has a hook. It's got a great hook, but that novel goes off in some really weird places. And so what the writer of the writer director of the film did was like, okay, so obviously 
we can't do some of the stuff that happens in the novel because it just won't make sense in a film. So we're going to make some tweaks and changes here. We're going to keep the main philosophy of the novel. We're going to add a little bit of philosophy to it. We're going to keep the story and we're going to take the story all the way to a big conclusion that happens in the novel, but it's quite different. Um, oh. And the film's great and the novel's great and they complement each other really well. And you can watch the movie without having to read the novel and stuff and appreciate it. And you can read the novel without seeing the movie and appreciate it. And you can read both of them and appreciate them in different ways. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and so that's, that's a, it's a really, really good film version of a novel that did not seem like it could be made into a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would suggest if you want to see interesting point of view, that one's very interesting because it's Natalie Portman's husband has gone and disappeared into like this sci-fi um, swamp. Uh, kind of like so. Basically, what's happening is the this this comment or meteor hit and has created an an alternate universe essentially inside a small part of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you walk through it things inside are very different and so there is a for instance a bear that talks um it's and so they it's it's very good uh but it's her point of view the entire movie and you discover along with her as she discovers things and then you discover that there's something really weird happening in this world and this like alternate reality inside this like sphere um that's influencing all these things right it's Mm -hmm. very very good and that um, point of view, would you say, that's hers? It is her point of view. Yeah. So we don't see her husband's way. That's what I was thinking. No. Is that- well, we do. So there, we kind of do in the sense that they watch videos of uh, that her husband who went in there with his crack, like Black Ops mm-hmm. team, uh, they took videos. And so you do see his point of view a bit in, in those videos and things and stuff. You see what they're seeing and how essentially, you know, one scene that, the, the they are actually changing like physically changing for instance there's it's kind of gross but they cut open a guy but inside of him his intestines are no longer normal intestines like they are literally evolving from the inside out into something else um it's very cool it's really well done uh but it's also you know how do you describe that how do you show that point of view you know they show natalie portman watching her husband's point of view and reacting to it as he's like clearly going murderously insane in these videos that she's watching so it's very good. Um, I think that's another good example of playing with point of view as well, because that's whole, its whole narrative arc is that the film starts after she's gotten out and she's trying mm-hmm. to remember what happened when she went in. That's interesting. You know, I tend to think in, in uh, first person is such a common thing in written fiction that we forget, or a lot of people just never realize, it's meant to be more than just a straight telling of a story there's if don't do it this way if you're not going to bring in some spin or some swing or something and um and it seems to me that's obviously in these films which are identified as first person which i realize it's not as obvious as a book which starts with the word i um but that there, there's much more of a consciousness that you're doing something interesting with it, that it's not just going to be this person telling this story, but it's going to be this person's telling a story that isn't true, or this person is telling a story that they don't actually know, or this person's yeah. trying to recover memories that they've lost, and that in each of these that you've been talking about, the first-person films are first-person because they are going to tell... A, I don't know how to say it. This the is audience, a story. I guess the way to do it is that the audience learns what the characters learn 
at the same time. That's kind of way to, I guess that's the way to point it out, is mm-hmm. that there are films where you, you know things that your lead characters don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, you know, sort of iron, right? Like, mm-hmm. so you, but then there are other films where you learn things as the characters learn things. Okay. And so that's kind of really where a lot of like point of view comes in and stuff. And like, how do you present that? Um, similar to novels, right? So like big mystery novels and stuff, they're not going to, for example, tell you uh, that who the killer is at the very beginning, right? But other novels, like Will, you know, going back to Silence of the Lambs, in the book and movie, it's never a mystery who the killer is, really. You know who the killer is. The audience does, but Clarice doesn't. The point is, how does Clarice discover who the killer is? Now, you don't know necessarily the identity of the killer exactly, but you kind of do. You know what he looks like. You yeah, know, they've given him a name. Yeah, he's got a name and stuff, that he has certain um, sexual deviancies that have not aged the best, let's just say at the very least, mm-hmm. um, and stuff that, you know, you learn about these things prior to them talking about in the film. But then, for example, in the movie Annihilation, you don't. You don't learn anything except when Natalie Portman's character learns these things. Mm-hmm. So I guess in a sense that that's maybe one of the ways to think of as a first person versus a, a um, as of a third person viewpoint. Yeah, you know, and I think that... And if you want to do the whole, like, found footage stuff maybe that's similar to a third like a second person almost because yeah that's very good Uh, yeah yeah i can see that because there's only a few second person novels and they're all very directive you do this you do that you walk into them you're thinking no i didn't do it but it is very much like the camera you are being forced to walk with this camera yeah there's a there's a movie that, that uh, called Hardcore Henry, which is about like they took a they had this guy who was a professional parkour free runner, stuck a camera on his head, and made an action movie around him where he goes around and blows people up. And like he like has a name, but everybody talks directly to camera, directly to you, and mm-hmm. tells you what's going on, and you're experiencing it. And tell as the story unfolds, they tell you things essentially. Yeah. So yeah, I think that does feel much more like uh second person and yeah. with first person in in i think in story in written story it's it's so much more obvious because we use pronouns but the there is deep third person which is very similar to first person in some ways in that you're getting in the hearts and the feelings and the thoughts of one particular person to the exclusion of others but uh, it's missing that sort of like what dean coons does right yeah, yeah, Dean Twins is, I always, I always use that Mr. Murder passage where Mr. Murder is driving through Kansas City and he's got this long stream of consciousness. It's all in third person, but it yeah. feels like first person. But I think in film, it's, what, what's also, is that if, point of view never has to be exclusive. I mean, I wrote a first, you know, first person point of view novel with five first person points of view. Well, yeah, but, Game of Thrones did that. Yeah, and it, I think that it's, there's also that sense of who are you, are you excluding other perspectives? And to me, in a first person film, you are almost deliberately excluding other per- people's perceptions. Tyler Durden's perceptions are excluded, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, because so remember, there's, there's in, in Fight Club, there's Jack, okay, who's. Um, Edward Norton. Edward Norton's character. Uh-huh. And there's Tyler Durden, who is Brad Pitt, right? Uh-huh. And they're the same person. Okay. Um, but, you know, that's the big, the big reveal is that they are the same person. 
uh, and that Tyler Durden is just a split personality version of Jack, mm-hmm. right? Um, so where that kind of thing is, yeah, I mean, you are, you are seeing Tyler Durden's viewpoint, but what you aren't seeing is that Tyler, Tyler Durden's viewpoint is actually Jack's split personality viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Okay, and in that case... That one is, Fight Club is a really, really, like, difficult movie to kind of discuss and to think of it, because it is a, it was, you know, an, a mid-90s uh, movie, an early 90s novel, where the author was really trying to play with viewpoints and, and stuff, and character structure and things, and the movie was doing the same thing. So that's a good movie to use as an example of how to um, subvert standard perspective, point of views, these kind of things. And how to like talk about that? How um, to me was in print when it was the most important, and he was the first really to be doing this back in you know eighteen thirty eight. He had one William Wilson, where his the narrator's name is William Wilson, mm-hmm. and the, or or he even that's kind of deceptive, or some common very common name like that. He doesn't, and so he goes away to boarding school, and he meets another boy who's named William Wilson, and it drives him insane because it makes him feel so common. And there's this, ah. and the, the question is always there, well, is there actually another William Wilson or is this an aspect of his personality or is this him shattering? And um, it, 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 he, he does a lot with that type of thing. You never know whether his narrators are sane or not. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and so, so that, that I almost, what I, you know, with Fight Club, I think, you know, you invent this other personality for some reason. You know, I mean, there's obviously it's subconscious and it's insane or whatever, but you have some, there is some reason why this happens to you. Um, and I thought that that was done, that was done really interestingly because the, the character is, does not understand this and the audience doesn't understand it until there's a moment where they do understand it. And yeah. then the question now becomes why? Why did this happen to this young man? And to what purpose is this other personality and stuff? So that that's very so. Um, but but I don't you know I agree. I don't think you could explore the first person filmmaking is a great way to explore that. And if you just had okay, I'm going to give you this one person's perspective on this, and there's no trick, and there's no deception, and there's no subtext, then it's going to be far more boring than getting a comprehensive view from the, um, an omniscient or a perspective of an ensemble cast if there's not any kind of experiment there or, you know, deeper meaning to what is the perspective of perspective? What does perspective mean? What does it mean that we have different understandings and realities and stuff? Okay. Any other thoughts then about, uh, if you were going to sum up with the idea of when you are choosing to uh, film a scene or film a story or something like that, what considerations would you do to make that make the choice of how do I approach this through point of view? So I'd say the first the first step you need to take is number one. Um, you know, you always want to start a film by if you're going to have a character film. Okay, some films are very experimental and don't even have characters. You know, or the characters are a philosophy or something, right? But ninety nine point nine 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 percent of films have characters. The first thing you want to do is determine who are your characters, create your characters, okay? Um, And that's also when you're gonna determine, okay, who's my point of view character? Who's my main character or characters? Who am I going to show? And then you wanna think, all right, how am I going to show them? 
So uh, it looks like somebody is here. Let me, I think that's one of our neighbors. We're over, hang on. Hey Adele, I'm on a speaker right now, so I'm just trying to get a camera pulled up. Hey Alima, Adele's here. Adele's here, I need like five more minutes, okay? Sorry about that, Mom. Uh, so, yeah, so what you want to do, this is great timing, I'm going to over here and let's talk over here okay so yeah so you want to start with you know building your characters and their point of view and how you want to how you want to show these characters that's really important do you want to show them learning these things as you the audience learns it or do you want to show them the audience learning things first so there's a sense of tension on like oh my god what's going to happen you know the mm. things Silence of the Lambs that does this where all the lights get turned off and she's in like complete darkness and she can't see where Buffalo Bill is, right? That's a very but good, yeah. We that's know where completely he is. in her perspective. Right, like we know where he is because he's got night vision. We know he has night vision. We see her in his eyes, right? right? Mm -hmm. So it's really well done. So like, how do you want to present that? Okay, how do you want to present your characters? And then you can really start building on the story. You know, most people will start with characters and how they want to present them and how they want to do these and then we'll build like an outline and a story and this kind of stuff it's really important to do all of this because it's not a novel you know it's you need to have a visual element to all of this and you need to be thinking about what the camera is essentially doing or how you can write so that somebody can stick a camera there mm -hmm. um, and so that's really really important when would you choose to do what you would identify as kind of first person filmmaking through the scene or the story in first person uh well you know as we said the first as we kind of figured the first person was more of like a a you discover things as the character discovered things right mm -hmm. well you would do that usually in the outline phase you mm -hmm. know you've already been coming up with kind of the story and stuff you would outline it and you would present the mystery and outline just like in a novel outline is you basically hit the main story beats of the and character beats of it you know it's 10 pages or so it's easy to read it gives you the whole 90 minute movie in 10 pages right mm -hmm. um, so it's sort of as if it's a short story version of the movie mm -hmm. so and you know some people will do their outlines very novel like where they will explain what's going on in their minds and stuff and they will explain like they will basically write a 10 page short story that is the movie Mm -hmm. um, other times they won't. Other times they'll be very, very direct. And it's just basically like, this character does this, this character does that, this character. I'm going to kind of let that be part of the script and the directing choices. Mm -hmm. So um, it's very open for folks. The only thing that you need to know is just what do you want to tell the, in the outline phase anyway, what do you want to basically say that's going to sell your movie? Um, it's really when it comes into the scripting phase after you've done the outline where you really, really determine a lot of the times for folks where you really determine what these characters are exactly seeing, when they're seeing it, when they're discovering these things, what their motivations really are, you know. And the outline, you're basically just discussing, hey, here's the movie, here's the plots, here's the characters, here's the theme, here's basically what happens. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, any other thoughts? Any other uh, ideas? I would just say that um, if you're trying to do point of view for for film to keep in mind, really the most important thing is to keep in mind is that it is visual. Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't tell, well, 
you shouldn't tell the audience what's happening. You should show it to them. You should write as if you were showing it to them. Um, you should let like the directors and the cinematographers and the actors really be the end, like because they're going to be the ones that decide all of this, how to do that. So you should write to help that along, help move that, give suggestions and stuff, but don't make demands. Mm -hmm. um, one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of writers will make when they come out here is that they think that LA is very much a a writer's world. Television certainly is, but film is not. Um, and even television now is being a lot more like film in the sense is that, that directors and cinematographers are so heavily involved in prestige television right now. Um, a lot of people say television, modern television shows are so cinematic. Well, what they mean is that there's amazing camera movements, there's incredible editing, there's uh, lighting. It's not just somebody talking in front of a camera like mm -hmm. it wasn't a lot of TV uh, or shot in front of a live studio audience and stuff like that, right? Like mm -hmm. it was, TV used to be much, much more about the writing as opposed to the whole visual medium. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's really important to think about is just that if you're writing point of view, always keep in mind that the true point of view is the camera and anything you do can be superseded by the camera. So you mm -hmm. can write it, for example, to say, okay, well, this person discovers this kind of thing at this point. And the director would be like, well, so this person discovers that the killer is actually in the room with them and stuff at this point. And I want it to be a surprise that they're, they're hiding in the audiences. And the director would be like, no, that's dumb. I want the killer to sneak in through the window and the audience sees it and our character dumped because that, heightens, that can heighten tension. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind. Yeah. It's always a collaborative medium that things are going to change and it's going to be very, it's probably going to be very different than you originally intended. Mm -hmm. And I also like your idea about why in fact pop fiction translates so much better to creating prestige film. Yeah. I mean, there's, prestige. Yeah, I mean, there, it just works. You know, it's the kind of thing where like pop fiction usually is high, high concept books that are fast paced and they make it, they're easier to adapt. Um, mm -hmm. it's, I mean, somebody actually did adapt the castle from Franz Kafka and it's a great movie, but it didn't make any money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of the way to, to kind of think about these things is that again, with film, it's a lot of money that's being invested into this. A lot of money is being invested in this. Uh, yeah, Gone, well, Girl, Gone Girl, Girl, the book didn't cost a lot of money to make or publish, but it cost $40 million to make the movie. Mm -hmm. So when you start thinking about that, like, yeah, like you don't want to be taking risks necessarily when you have $40 million at stake. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of money. And so pop fiction is just, it's, you know, scripts need to be written in a few months, usually um, they're high concept. And then where real, the real good filmmaking stuff happens is when the actual film is being made, when it's being shot. If the story's already well-paced, got solid characters, um, has a theme, has character arcs, that's just all the easier. Now you can focus on the real good filmmaking aspects of it. The good lighting, the good editing, the strong acting, the directing of like the blocking and the characters and how, where the camera's gonna be and how we're all feeling and seeing it. Like, that's why pop novels, work so well is because you're not spending a whole bunch of time developing the story and characters already because it's already done 